Hello, my name is Tim Abrahams and this is Super Urbanism, a podcast where we meet the architects and designers who try to make our cities better and ask them, why would you even bother? This week I'm talking to one of the tallest architects out there and certainly one of the most influential. Peter Barber is an architect of public housing but he's also just curated the architecture room at the Royal Academy Summer Show. So I went along there to talk to people about Peter before visiting him in his amazing studio in King's Cross. I'm Edwin Hethke. I'm the architecture critic for the Financial Times. I'd say that Peter Barber is a force for good. I'd say he's a very rare example of an architect who tries to work not quite exclusively, but largely in social housing, which is a very neglected sector, and he's extremely good at it. My name's IQJ. I'm an architect, architecture critic, and a writer. When did you first uh, come into contact with Peter Barber's work? I grew up in East London, and one of his early schemes was in Bow. I used to drive past it on the bus. The first thing that struck me about it was how different it looked to everything else. Um, it was whitewashed, it was almost had this feel of kind of Mediterranean villas in the middle of the East End of London, and also significantly it had a kind of main street or public space running through. So those were the kind of key things that struck me about it as being slightly different from conventional housing developments. Have you pressed the button, Tim? I have pressed the button. I'm Vicky Richardson. I'm Head of Architecture and Drew Heinz Curator at the Royal Academy. Peter Barber RA has, has been invited to curate this year's Architecture Room and he's part of a committee which is headed up by David Remfrey RA and David is um, a wonderful artist in his 80s. He's, he's a really maverick, sociable character. He lived in the Chelsea Hotel in New York for 20 years um, and a lot of his work is about nightclubs. He set this theme, Only Connect, which was really his feeling like that, that people are, have, have become kind of um, alienated from each other and he wanted, he wanted to um, bring people together and he saw the summer exhibition as, a, as an amazing opportunity to do that. And I think really appropriately, Peter Barber was asked to be on the committee because you know, Peter was elected an RA in 2022 he's quite new to the to the RA and his life's work's been about housing so it, it seems very appropriate that he he should have been doing the architecture room as as part of the show what do you think of there's Peter's choice of theme for the the room which is craft I believe yeah I mean craft um I suppose like that doesn't tell you that much that single word I think what he was really getting at was this an idea of human connection through materials um, so the idea that in architecture we've become sort of alienated from the process of making and he um, responding to this idea of only connect David's David Renfrey's theme he wanted to emphasize the connection between architecture and making and how making as a process brings people together how would you describe the room to someone who's not seen it um, i would i would say the overriding impression that you might get of the summer exhibition and the architecture room is eclecticism um, it's densely hung with work there are around 300 works in the architecture room and 1600 works overall um, and it, the, the great thing about it is that when you go around as a visitor, it, it forces you to think about what you respond to as an individual. What, what do you like? What interests you? What draws you in? And um, I, think, I think it's that process of sort of, um, you know, informally of a sort of critical analysis that goes on in your head when you're going around that I think is really wonderful and if you stand there and over listen to people's conversations you hear you hear all the visitors talking about what they like and what they don't like and I mean how often does that happen in an exhibition there's just a total active engagement from the audience that's a defining feature of it what do you think of Peter Barber's work um, his work in general 
I mean, I just, I really admire his total dedication to housing, which, you know, he's become terribly fashionable in the last couple of years, and he's won all sorts of awards. But you've got to remember that he's been, he's been working in this field for a couple of decades without anyone ever having noticed him or, or known what he's doing. Um, and he's a really, really intelligent, genuine, straightforward person. And I just feel like architecture needs lots more uh, people like Peter Barber because he's, you know, he, he, he's totally committed to making ordinary places better. I was very pleased when he agreed to be interviewed. So, my name's Peter Barber, I'm an architect. I, uh, we're sitting in the meeting room of our office, surrounded by hundreds of models of the work we've been doing over the last four decades. Uh, it's, it's an incredible room, and a lot of the models are white, and there's beautiful light coming in from behind, and, but it's all kind of different. It's cardboard, mainly cardboard, and some but some foam stuff and trees dotted around. Yeah. Which is the oldest model here, do you think? Oh, well, I mean, the one up there is the Donnybrook um, uh, scheme, which is the, the, was a big step forward for us. In fact, the competition model's up on the top right, and this is what it became later. And I suppose that is where some of the formal tricks of our work um, were developed for the first time and, and got built for the first time. Where is Donnybrook? So it's in the east end of London. It was a wonderful competition run by uh, Circle 33 Housing Association and it came at a similar time to Richard Rogers' Urban Task Force. So things which hitherto had been impossible, you know, rather narrow streets, very low parking requirements, relaxations on sort of privacy, uh, you know, a much more urban approach to housing. So it was a sort of um, perfect storm, really. The, the competition was set up. Rogers's kind of new policy became uh, ingrained, uh, you know, in, in within local authorities, um, and Donnybrook was really the sort of came out of that. So that would have been two thousand or uh, earlier. I I think around then. Yeah, I would say. Around so then. what what was what was the area like in two thousand? Well, well, they were doing it, it, it's it's over there in Tower Hamlets, and they were doing a lot of estate regeneration. They were blowing up some tower blocks and trying to make it feel more street-based, I think. But the architecture itself was a bit of its time. It was a bit kind of um, uh, folksy, really. I think a lot, lot of things they were doing from a sort of um, spatial perspective, from an urban perspective, were, were good. Um, and um, but it was quite conservative, and I think the board of of Circle Thirty Three, one person in particular, uh, called Jane Blonde Cooper, uh, wanted the housing association to rise to these new challenges and these new opportunities with a more adventurous architecture. And um, so they ran this competition. Over a hundred people went in for it, and we hit the you know our little practice, which was just me and another guy, uh, a year out student, um, hit the jackpot. It was amazing. So you, it was a competition win. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, your architecture has evolved since that time. At that time, you, it's, uh, it, it's quite the the architect I think of when I look at it, mm. look at it is Alvaro Caesar. Indeed, is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, very fair. So um, Caesar and uh, you know Corbusier and Luce and you know a white architecture. And I was, I, I, I was quite, you know. I was, young and immature and thought that really for, for, for stuff to be architecture needed to be white you know I've changed my view now but uh, um, I, I mean I mean white render is a beautiful medium you know and Corbusier talks about painting with light and you know um, um, people are critical of it and they, uh, because they said well it's, it's not really a London architecture uh, and I said well hang on a second you know go down to Bayswater and pop up to Kentish Town Stucco is actually part of as much part a part of of our vernacular as 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 uh, stock brick. Um, and to, to, if you we can talk just a little bit about mm. some of the some of some of the, you describe them as tricks, yeah. which I think is a little bit unfair on yourself. But you you've got the the 
am I correct in saying, having seen subsequent mm. work, that you raise the the bedrooms are on the, the the upper floors? Yeah, I mean, so so in Donnybrook, they're actually they're actually actually double stackers. So there's right. one unit on top of another. There's a ground floor unit which has a back courtyard, yeah. and then up above that's a two story maisonette which has uh, uh, its courtyard in in a notch. And it's a peculiar uh, hybrid typology. It sort of combines courtyard housing with terrace housing. Terrace housing obviously very familiar within London. It's what most of London's made of. But the courtyard, I think, it has been underexplored. And um, I spent early on in my career a year in, in Saudi Arabia and, and um, um, got really fascinated with it as a type. Interesting, interesting. We've gone from... You've just, I wasn't expecting that level. You're talking very much about the, the kind of... The, the vernacular and, and mm. um, but then also a universal quality which is the courtyard yeah yeah at the courtyard and the street the you know and the other thing that I, I go on about a lot is is the street and um, perhaps it's not something one needs to bang on about as much as one you know needed to uh, earlier on um, but for me the street is the basic building block of the city and um, I can't think really of any urban environment which is organised in any other way, which works, which works as well. Uh, and you know, I suppose uh, our work, especially early on, came uh, in the aftermath of you know experiments with other urban types of urban form, um, which which really rejected the street. Uh, and um, you know, much post-war uh, housing was like that, with 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 I think problems. And because for me, the streets are extraordinary, public space is extraordinary, it belongs to everybody, it belongs to nobody. It's, these are spaces where people from different social backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different economic backgrounds are sort of thrown together and we see one another and um, are available to one another and not necessarily get to know one another, although, although we can do. So the, the street is this amazing kind of mixing. I noticed that as you're saying that you're looking out onto the street outside. <laughs> well, it's lovely, you know, yeah. and uh, and it seems absolutely right that we have a shop front. And in fact, I was just opening up this morning, and, and there was there was some people get, looking in, and uh, they were down from Inverness for for a few days, and um, uh, uh, husband and wife and daughter daughter lives here, and um, I, I was able to invite them in, and he was he's a maker himself, and he was really fascinated by all the models. Uh, but we have homeless people knocking on the door and wanting to know what's going on and, and students and I uh, had 20 people from Holland in here um, and uh, I used to have on the door a, a quote by, by the great Lena Bobardi uh, where she's talking about the, the, the kind of responsibility that comes with having a shop front and how a shop front is uh, a way of projecting your ideas into the city and uh, it feels very much like that it's a, it's a lovely interface with the people who are walking past and so, talking about being in a shop window, mm. Donnybrook, did it? Did you? Did it put you in? Did you? Did obviously open some doors mm. subsequently. And what? What? What was? What? Looking back now, what we and looking around the mm. room, which is the next kind of evolution or the next stage, which you think is kind of important? I know each pro. It's very difficult mm. for an architect mm. to say that because you treasure and value each project. Mm. Suppose. Well, well, no, no. I mean, I think. <clears throat> Uh, it's very evident looking around you that there are themes which develop uh, but, and are revisited um, throughout throughout the work. And to that extent, I'm a bit of a terrier, you know, where I could be kind of stuck. I, I haven't changed my... Well, things have changed a little, but um, still the sort of basic um, tenets of the work and things that we think are important have remained unchanged. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, with each project... The particular context does does pull you, pull and push the scheme, but there are lots of themes which kind of recur. I mean, the big change from the Donnybrook days is a, a, a move in the direction of, of, of brickwork. Um, and uh, Donnybrook, they've actually looked after beautifully and has been maintained and painted well. But another scheme we've done down in Barking called Tanner Street, over 100 homes, a lovely scheme, but it's not seen a lick of paint in 30 years. And um, it feels to me as though um, brick is a more forgiving material for um, large, sort of often slightly absentee landlords who really aren't in the game of maintaining their properties well. So which was your first brick? Which was the first brick project? Um, which was the first brick project? Um, or of, or well, the whole, the, the whole raft of them came at once. We got um, projects in Enfield and in Greenwich, 
a whole collection of sites in each of these and um, we kind of decided to work in brick and um, so that was probably 15 or so years ago. So it's not long after, it's 2006, yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah, um, there's a, a fairly early one called Mount Pleasant uh, Hostel which is a kind of mixture of, of render and brick. Tanner Street itself also had a kind of base of brickwork. So I, I, I'm, trying, I'm looking around and seeing, seeing the, 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 the introduction of new with the brick becomes, the, the arch is introduced into yeah. the work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose at this time you must have, it, it's kind of one thing to start mm. off with a, a series of what you've mm. <laughs> Called tricks or yeah. kind of architectural yeah. ideas. Mm. So I suppose that the key moment is when you decide, no, actually, this is what I'm sticking to, mm. as well. And as you kind of you start using a different, a different. Uh, I mean, I know it's it's not everything. The facing, the facade. It's mm. it's it's, but it does lend a new quality and a new yeah, opportunity. No, right. And so it it must have been at that point you kind of go, well, this is how we change, but mm. this is what we stick to mm. as well. Yeah, I think this, so. I think the change in material was a really big one, and um, uh, the possibility, as you say, uh, of of kind of uh, of, of br interesting brick detailing and some of it quite playful, um, and in a way, it's quite funny. So, so um, I had an interest before I studied um, architecture in 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 the vernacular of uh, 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 the south east of England where I grew up, and. Um, and and annexed to that an interest in the arts and crafts movement and um, uh, and I think possibly you know one's ret slightly returned to, to that. So tell me, where did you grow up and and, and how did you engage with mm. the arts? How, how did that well, I, I grew up in Hampshire, and um, I, I can't quite remember how it came about, but I uh, got in, involved in a sort of group of people who were doing surveys of historic buildings, ones that were kind of falling apart, old barns and things like that. And um, so I did a little bit of that and got interested in um, architecture that way. I also spent a year in um, Southern Africa um, working in a sort of building team in a school and got interested in building. As a, and that was another, another thing that brought me, brought me to, to architecture. And I suppose there, there, there was at, at the time some a, a kind of a renewed interest in the arts and crafts. So there was a, I can't remember, was it at the Haywood or somewhere there was an exhibition of, um, you know, and people were writing a book about luncheons. And, they, and they, these people had been kind of ignored, I think, for pretty much 100 years. And so it, it was more in the ether. And, uh, and, I, and it's very accessible work. It's very under, easy to understand. And, it, you know, it's not as, it's, not as, it's not as complicated to engage with as, as kind of high modernism, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. It says a lot about Peter's work and his approach to it that he steps back from the idea of a European high modernist style of white rendered volumetric shapes, cubes, slightly stark and potentially off-putting shapes in an urban landscape and moves on to a material which this, the rest of the city is made from, namely brick. It's a key moment in his evolution as an architect. What's the biggest model in the room? That's, that's huge, that one. That's almost as tall as... Yeah, that's 100 Mile City. So Oh, right. So this is, this is, that's, that's very interesting because 100 Mile City is one of the, the projects that I remember you doing and I remember seeing it exhibited at the design museum yeah that's I, right yeah yeah uh, and i remember disagreeing with lots of it yeah 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 <laughs> but it's it was uh, i mean well i disagree with it now <laughs> i believe so i i, I remember you remember you and i said that I, and i thought it was it was i was but i i remember i remember thinking the thing that it made me think about your work is mm. that you you know there there's and it leads to your, you know, the idea of you kind of reusing kind of ideas, courtyard, maisonettes, linking things up, mm. elevating, mm. elevating the sleeping quarters, eyes on the street, street mm. as a, as a, as a, emphasizing that element of, of, mm. of the street. I remember thinking, wow, you, you, this iteration is not a mistake. Mm. There's also a quality to which you think iteration can be. Can be done on a done on a huge scale, yeah. and I, rem I remember thinking, um, I remember thinking that's really impressive. Perhaps you could before you start criticizing yourself, <laughs> could you tell me what the ideas were well, behind the, the? Well, it's 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 a provocation, really. Yeah, 
and um, it, and, it, and it arises really out of. I mean, I, I teach a day a week, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a there's a there's a side to me which it likes to just uh, think in a more fundamental way about things uh, and how things might be different in a different kind of economy and and um, political environment. And so you know um, and. Uh, so, so there are lots of these projects, and, and, and they're often just sketches in a book. But occasionally, an idea takes hold, and um, that that was what was one which did. And so, that model is is cast in plaster and represents months and months of work by somebody here. And the idea was that um, I was it's in response really to kind of walking around the corner in in parts of central London and seeing you know the wreckage of of social housing being demolished and coming under the under the wrecking ball, and uh, wondering where, we, if we need all these houses, where we could put them without demolishing perfectly serviceable buildings. Some of them historical urban blocks, some of them more recent inter and post war social housing. And I just thought it would be interesting to imagine a dense city settled on uh, a part of town which was much less densely populated. So the edge of town where there are bungalows and and, and houses with huge gardens, wouldn't that be a more efficient way of um, planning things rather than knock, knocking down really well-established pieces of, you know, uh, and quite already quite dense pieces of um, city? So uh, 100 miles is the circumference of London, and uh, I thought it'd be interesting to think about uh, demolishing the last 100 metres of suburbia uh, and to see how many millions of houses, and I can't remember the figure anymore, one would get if that's what one, what one did. And rather than, as, as is being done at the moment, very tall buildings being put next to tube stations, that this would be a much more kind of traditional city with narrow streets and buildings of four and five storeys. There'd be schools and factories and um, houses and places where people could, people could work. And it'd be a much more social, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of friendly environment with people living on streets and around squares than the sort of traditional kind of suburbia which it seems to me is often quite antisocial. One thing I really like about the model is mm. that you've kind of retained the suburban condition on the look. Yeah. With well, these I mean, houses in these kind of gardens in large plots, uh, uh, these houses yeah. in large plots. Well, I imagine it kind of spreading, rather than, you know, the opposite, which is very often cities sprawl outwards, mm. the idea that it might sprawl inwards and consume this, uh, you know, it's, and, and join back up with central London. You know. Yeah. There's also a monorail, the, other, the idea being that um, London is, is very well served with public transport you know, in and out, actually. But if you want to get from one part of suburbia to another, you have to come back into London to go back out. And so that the frayed ends of, of the sort of transport systems uh, you know, um, would be connected by a monorail, a bit like the Vaupital monorail, which is one of my favourite kind of things, a, a high-level kind of... Uh, well, we're going through suburbia. I mean, looking back on it now, it's very, in, very interesting because what you've alluded to, the the radial kind of train lines have started to be in, introduced. The overground mm-hmm. has been done, so in, in many ways, pre prefigures that. Mm-hmm. That you've got. I mean, one of the things that I think is very funny is that that concept is Norman Foster's plan for the uh, estuary uh, airport. Mm-hmm. Part of it, pre, part of, part of it included this radial, this radial um, train train oh, I system. I know that. Norm would like a monorail as well. He'd probably like a monorail, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But 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 fascinating, and also because of the there's a certain similarity with the um, street votes concept, which yep. is hey, as much as, as much as the, the the proposition kind of is a, an interesting debating style. Mm. I dis, and I disagree with elements of it, but then I meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, I find the street votes thing quite hilarious. That the idea that people would willingly get together and sur- yeah, oh, yeah, should yeah. we surrender our gardens for, yeah, the, sake yeah. of this, for yeah. the sake of the we thought we'll have a Georgian so we can have a Georgian terrace and you know that, yeah. that that's not a not valid proposition mm. but um but 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 I think you know or looking back on it I think in many ways it was more uh, I can see why it I can see why the the, the, the dug deep in your mind because mm. it's actually there's thing things that are out there in the ether which have subsequently been revealed as, mm. as, as, as being kind of important what Peter was interested in is densifying the suburbs a way of solving the housing crisis which we currently suffer now, other bodies and other groups and other people have been thinking along similar lines. Street votes is one such proposal. 
This is where you and your neighbours propose a street plan, setting out exactly what additional building work should be permitted and how it should look. The whole street votes on the proposal, and if the vote passes, then everyone in the street has the right to develop their property in line with the plan. Now, the advocates of street votes often see this as being a way to replace 1950s and 1960s bungalows with a weird modern version of a Georgian terrace. So far, the street vote legislation has yet to be introduced, and it remains an interesting proposal for densifying, which has yet to be proven. More recently, I wrote a thing called, you know, if we've got, um, and maybe it's getting getting more and more um, uh, ridiculous, but uh, 100 Mile City was one kind of ribbon, but the, the next one is 8,000 Mile Island. Uh, and this this was an idea that um, um, arose out uh, arose out of a number of things, but one is that there are hundreds of thousands of empty homes in this country, particularly you know out of London, out of the southeast, particularly as a consequence of the um, decline of, of of industry in in many northern cities. Uh, again, perfectly serviceable, sometimes beautiful um, terraced housing, bricked up and blocked up and and, and just decaying. Uh, and the uh, and the and the idea, therefore, that actually, do, do we really are we really facing any kind of housing shortage? Is it just not that um, you know too much money uh, is concentrated in London? And if again one was thinking radically about our economy and um, so on, oughtn't we to be thinking about trying to encourage um, the use of these other cities and what what actually might they become? And uh, rather than building millions of houses in, in London, which if the economy was organised properly, we wouldn't need. Um, so, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of empty homes in this country. It's a scandal. So, the, the, again, the circumference of, or the coastline of, this, of, this, of these islands about 8,000 miles long. Some of the most deprived areas in this country are coastal communities, some of them, uh, um, you know, industrial ones, but... Um, some of the you know most depressing indices of poverty are in are in uh, coastal cities uh, around around these islands, and so it's thinking what about if we had a maritime uh, agricultural and uh, industrial revolution, uh, and the government and it would be the government rather than private industry, properly started investing um, in the, the energy industries in tidal power in wind power offshore. Uh, in fish farms uh, and in seaweed farms. Uh, we currently import 50% of our food comes from overseas. As, as our relationship with the um, EEC declines, it'll be coming from further afield. The food miles will increase. But how about making it an objective to be food self-sufficient or to a significant extent um, by using at the sea? We've got three times as much sea as we have land in, in this country. Um, uh, and, and you know it's a it's a unique resource which we're just not exploiting. So we've got all these these fishing industries which are in decline, these coastal um, industries which are in decline. What about using the know-how of all of these extraordinary people in um, having a new, having a new kind of industries which generate um, energy and provide food for us? Wow. Is there a model of that yet? <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 what's great about 100 Mile City is, is a, you know, I could make that model and it was easy, you know, it's a seductive image and yeah. the drawings and things like that. It's like a, sl the, the, the image we're looking at, it's like a sl almost like a slice of bacon. Yeah. You're showing the, yeah. showing the streak, of, streak of it and you, you immediately can imagine, you can immediately imagine the whole ham as it Yeah, grows. exactly. Well, that's a lovely <laughs> analogy. I was very pleased that Peter was taken with my meat-based analogy. Although I did think he might struggle to find one for his 8,000 mile island project. So I've been trying to think about how to create it because, you know, part of getting an idea across is to have an image that you can... So I've been trying to think of a map in some way and, and I've been thinking of sort of those lovely sort of medieval maps which combine the map but with also with, with images, so engraved sort of lovely things uh, or perhaps... Um, some kind of etching, uh, etched, but because the form of the British Isles is very sort of uh, iconic, isn't it? And if there's some way of, or perhaps you know those old uh, woven maps that you get that we made on a sampler, sort of. Uh, not quite. It's not quite. It, it, I mean, we, we're sitting in 
I mean, even it's very interesting to that I have pointed at that one because within this beautiful room of models, it doesn't look, it doesn't look out of place. <laughs> it's part of it. It's part yeah, of the yeah. context, the scale that, mm. when you count up the units. I could, you know, it's obviously <laughs> a large number, but I, I didn't did, didn't immediately look at that and think that's out out with the bounds of possibility. There's another model there. That guy. That's what's is that? Well, it's another project that I wouldn't necessarily do the same way. So that is uh, Graham Park in North London, mm -hmm. and it's an estate uh, which has been the subject of uh, attempts by the local authority to improve it. Um, and uh, at the time when we made that model, the the the, the clear plan was that the, the estate would be demolished. Um, and it's, it's an estate that's very strange in the way it's organised. I mean, just. A, a simple thing like try to find somebody's address their front door it's one of those ones where you go down a bit there and up there up some stairs along a deck around a corner and you know and so we said or I thought that it would be interesting to see if 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 it was accepted that this estate would be demolished how it might be replaced with a much more sort of conventional ladder of streets you know so you've got the your house number you've got your street number and you know, and but again, it's, yeah. but it's not—it's not a million miles away from no, that. That's that, true. That slice of the million, yeah. the 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 the, the, um, the hundred mile city. Yes, but, what, but, but your but what you're suggesting now is a a different for it requires a different form of representation to what to what we're saying. Well, that's true. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, in relation to that, I I think we'd be as an office we'd be resisting uh, the. Demolition. I think we've done projects, uh, Kiln Place being an example in Camden, where we fought hard to retain existing blocks, but but done minor surgery and insertions of new uh, insertion of new housing in order to resolve some of the uh, the urban anomalies at the same time as creating new housing. And I think that's a much more interesting challenge, really, the lighter touch. Then I suppose that returns to Donnybrook, which is itself a kind of remitting, isn't mm, it? Yeah. Uh, albeit you've got how many units? Thirty units. Yes, yeah, so I think it's a little more than that, but not many more. But thirty but, to forty units, yeah. which is remitting a, into a larger, yeah, a larger cityscape. So you're, you're, what you're doing is quite similar, but yeah. perhaps even finer on a finer ground. Yeah. I mean, originally that 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 had a you know the the site had a there were there were no there was no way of walking through there. So, um, and when we when we won the competition on our on our on our boards, we said this scheme is a celebration of the public social life of the street, and there was nothing in the competition was asking for streets. It, they were asking for housing, and I think so. Adding that ingredient is what kept, was what captured the imagination of the judges. Yeah. So. What are you working on now? The most recently um, completed is is that guy there, which looks like a long spine, uh, and uh, it's possibly the most challenging site we've ever been given. It's just completed on site. It's next to the North Circular in Barnet, so that curve is the curve of the North Circular. Uh, it was a site which was sold off by TfL. They had been going to, in the 1970s, widen the North Circular, and so they bought up the houses which used to be there. In the end, they decided not to do it, and so it's just been lying fallow for the last 30 years or more. Uh, and last two, three, four years ago, they decided to sell off this narrow strip of land um, to the highest bidder, and our client um, won. And he partly won because TfL and the other bidders for the site were expecting 50 or so homes, and we managed to get 100 um, and we did it by creating this kind of wall building against the end of the North Circular uh, and, a, and a muse that runs parallel to the North Circular, which is that space sort of in behind that sort of building. And when you're in that muse, you would never know that the North Circular was there. The, 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 the sound, the noise, the dust, it's like a little oasis. Um, so it's got two, there's, so there's, there's, there's the, 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 the strong spine form yep. and there's a kind of, an inner and and then an, is it a full running inner length? Yes, yeah. I mean, the site is it, it's, it's really awkward. It, in places, it narrows down to I think about ten meters, uh, and so yes, that we've managed to thread this so that so it's a proper street to muse with buildings on both sides, um, and in some places it's it's almost nothing. In other places, you can see the form. They're, they're much deeper units. 
Um, and so it butts onto what, people's like gardens, nineteen thirties. Yeah, or uh, or early Edwardian, and um, yeah. and those people, you, you might, I mean, they're very very big houses with some sort of you know obviously wealthy occupiers, and you might have said, well, you know, how how did they feel about having all these these homes visited on them? But actually, what we've done is to solve the problem for them too. They can sit in their gardens without the rumble of traffic and the dust. So it was, it was a good news story for everybody, really. So that got planning permission in a matter of months. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, I noticed like halfway down, just on the, the left-hand side, yeah. just here, what, what's happening here? Yeah, so, so that's where the site is very deep. Right. Uh, and uh, so those are on the ground floor become sort of very deep courtyard uh, houses uh, with a maisonette above them, and so I mean they, they they're all different because the the, the the sites you know as you can see the sites depth varies a great deal. So, but so it's just using to the max the kind of depth of the site, and so it was a very very difficult project to draw because there's so much variation in it. Underneath that muse is a is a is a car park. <laughs> That you introduced? Yeah, yeah, it was a requirement of planning that we provided some car parking for the people who live there. How, how many car parking spaces are there? I think uh, probably 50 or so. Wow. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe fewer. Um, and I don't know how much they will be used actually because uh, it's not too far from a tube station. But uh, yeah. Interest interestingly, as well, at the, or at the is, is that running north south or is it or is it east west? Uh, it is roughly north south. North yeah. south. Yeah. So at the, the northern tip, you've got two four or five story blocks. Yeah, they're tall. It gets taller at either end to create sort of entrance way into the. So muse. you've got an entrance way in the same, the same, the same at the bottom. There's a bit of articulation at the bottom. There's some lovely little kind of like, lovely little com kind of slightly nuanced and very different props housing and flats and apartments yeah. in, the, in the southern well, so we had some Dutch people in yesterday and they were kind of making the connection with the Amsterdam school and some of the lovely decorative brickwork that came out in the 1920s and 30s to Clerk and, and people like that and um, I think they see a connection between what we're doing some of our sort of slightly quirky stuff and the stuff that was being done in their city do you, you, know. do you see a, a yeah very much so I love all that I love all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I should say about that block on the right is it's because it's so thin, it's one room deep. So, so nobody's relying on windows out, opening out over the main road, which is a six-lane motorway. They can all be opening their windows onto the, the well, muse. Well, it's almost literally a wall. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's the key. So, so the, other, the other people who entered the competition were doing sort of object, three object buildings. Which did nothing to to deal with the you know the nuisance of the road, and which, as I say, got half as many homes. That's a fascinating project. And other new things that you well, another one that's relatively recent is McGrath Road, um, which is which won the Neve Brown Prize at the RBA a couple of years ago, a year or so ago, and that's an interesting one because um, it came out actually. You mentioned the the, the exhibition at the, the Design Museum. I hadn't really tumbled to the fact, why not, I don't know, that an awful lot of our ideas and types are reworkings of historic historic building types. So we talked about the double stacker, which back in Victorian times was called a cottage flat, one, one home on top of another, two front doors next to each other, one in and one up. Um, we, uh, when we do apartment buildings, they're more like Victorian mansion blocks than a modernist block. You know, the modernist block sat in space and wasn't doing, in my view, the right things urbanistically. But the Victorian mansion block was very purposeful in its relationship with the street. So when we do a man, uh, you know, apartment building, it's like that. McGrath Road is a reworking of back-to-back -back housing, which uh, was a was rare in London, actually, but was absolutely ubiquitous in northern cities in Victorian period, in their rapid expansion. And so a terrace of housing backing directly onto another terrace of housing, no back gardens, and just a blank back wall against shared between them um, and um, I thought it was a type that was worth looking at, at again it was discredited in the early part of um, the 20th century as slum housing but I thought it was worth, uh, worth looking at and I went up to Birmingham where they out of the 30,000 that used to exist in that city they've kept six and as a museum and you can you go in there and, and they're just lovely they're lovely and I was shown around by 
people who themselves, old, slightly older than me, not much, who'd grown up in back-to-back -back house housing a few hundred yards away from the museum, and they were lamenting the kind of the loss of that culture that came that very sort of uh, tight communities of, of necessity because people were living cheek by jowl. And they were all moved out in the 60s, out into tower blocks on the end of town, which have also now been bulldozed. And they're all living in bungalows even further out. So it's a sort of atomization of this lovely social world. And anyway, I was sort of emboldened by that, that, and we thought it would be worth kind of revisiting it. And so this project called McGrath Road, uh, which is that one there, with the central courtyard. So there are houses facing outwards onto the street, and then there are houses facing directly into the centre. They're four-storey high houses. Uh, so kitchen on the ground floor, bedroom, bedroom, and then on the top floor, a living room, where you have this rooftop courtyard. So you, you have a private space. So they are slightly different from traditional back-to-backs, which didn't obviously have rooftop courtyards. Uh, they also have their own bathrooms, which the traditional back-to-back, -back, you had to go down the street for a shower or whatever, or a crap. Wow. So, um, and that's been well received and, um, you know, uh, I'm in contact with a couple of people who live there who are really enthusiastic about it, really enjoying it. What would you do if someone came to you and said, would you like to do a tower block for us? Well, behind you is a tower block. Wow. Uh, I think that it's all about how they hit the ground. And, you know, nobody would complain about living in, in a tower block in Park Lane because it's on a kind of street or, or in, you know, in parts of Manhattan. So I think uh, it's about how they meet the street. And, the, and so you can see in that one uh, along the side, there are these quite sort of fanciful openings, which would be shops and, and so on. So giving something to the street. And then along the front, there's a colonnade, which, again, is a kind of magnanimous and sort of generous uh, um, uh, thing I think to do and it encourages kind of occupation and then I think it's also about the details so as buildings get bigger very often people kind of um, forget about the detail and so there would be uh, elements in that building particularly low down at street level of, of it would be brick uh, and of, sort of playful brick detailing but also how it meets the sky so you've got these sort of pop-up dormers and um, which kind of enliven the um, facade and, and, and how it makes a silhouette to the sky. Was this a, uh, an idea which is still an idea or was it, is it, is it still... I, I think it's, I mean, along with, you know, probably 90% uh, of the Bondal Times War will never get built. So we do, you know, you do dozens of schemes and um, so that one, but the thing is nothing is ever wasted. So I'd never really designed a tower block before. Uh, and uh, so I kind of know what I do now. Or, or I'd, I'd, it, so it's an, another. We talk about the sort of iterative process of accumulating experience and ideas over a long career, never tearing things up, just adding to it. And so that done last year uh, w was another kind of well, what if you know, what if? I love this model. This is this this model is very different. To, oh yeah. To series of. Well, I'm always terrible at describing colours. There's four, three. Four different colours there? There's a oh, well, and more, I think. And are there more? But are the predominant so ones are green and blue. And what's, yeah. this, what's this colour? Mustard? Yeah, I don't know. Something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this is a kind of, again, a, it, it, it looks like San, not San Gimignano. What's the well, place yeah, in Yemen, is it? Well, there's the San Gimignano has got all the towers, hasn't yeah. it? Uh, there's a Yemen. There's also a... Kind yeah, of, Shabam. Yeah, it's got that quality to it. Is yeah. This, I've seen this model before. Was it for the Royal Academy? It has been. A, yes, it has. Yes, it was. Yeah. So this is well, another sort of... It, it was yeah, it's another sort of fanciful project. But it's very interesting. And you've made the connection between some of these more fanciful ideas and other things which clearly are going to be built. Um, that was a, an idea of just about these little houses, little, um, you know, simple as it can be, you know, three, four-storey houses with a staircase, one room per floor, um, brightly coloured. And we were asked to do a, a feasibility study for, for a suburban site up in Barnet last year. And I found myself basically recycling that idea of these colourful houses. Um, and very strange, it looks very urban. The streets are, well, they're more alleyway, alleyways in the streets. But um, Barnet were quite interested in it as a proposal. No way. And, Isn't uh, it, I mean, that's, I, I know your work as, as not kind of hard. 
going to use the completely the wrong words, as, but I, hopefully I'll get to them through using the, wrong, the right ones, through using the wrong ones. But, well, you operate in a very cutthroat environment, not cutthroat, mm. but very yeah. bottom line environment yeah, yeah. in the fact that you're working in social housing. Mm, mm. And you are, you must have to constantly think about cost and keeping it low. Mm. Um, but yet your work and just being amongst it and seeing the models, the, mm. the hundred mile city and mm. these kind of yeah, Yemeni for one of the better yeah. words, urban yeah. environment, you, you've managed to kind of, and thinking about your 8,000 mile island, you, you managed to kind of keep the, keep the ideas flowing. Yeah. And, and, and what, which is, one could imagine those two things to happily kind of carry on in, independently yeah mm. it's very interesting just through our conversation seeing how they inform one another yeah how they, how they, how they, they drop into each yeah. other yeah i mean uh yeah again we had these dutch people here and they're saying how on earth do you manage to get this sort of stuff done you know the budgets that we have to deal with aren't uh, wouldn't allow it and um but we did talk figures a little bit and it didn't seem to me they were that different um, I think one of the, one of the uh, the word trick crops up in it. But one of our sort of the things that we do when when we when you do houses, every square meter of of, of, of space in that house is rentable or sellable. You're not, but when you do flats, twenty percent of all of the area that you're creating is is corridors and lifts, and and space that it just costs money to build and to maintain. So if you think of that, so in, if you have a five million pound apartment building, if you do the same number of units in houses, then it's four million quid because it's you know twenty percent of, of, of building you're not having to do. So I think that helps us the sort of net to gross argument. Um, I think we, you know, one of the great difficulties of London is this sort of um, you know overheated housing market. And in some ways that helps us. So if we're doing projects where the, the, the um, private housing is subsidising uh, the social housing, then an overheated housing market somewhat helps because um, our developer clients or the housing associations that we're working for can sell a very tidy profit um, some of the houses to, to fund the other stuff. And so some of our little, slightly excessive little bits of detailing sort of get through that way, I suppose. <laughs> You are curating the summer show. Mm. Is that its official title? Yeah, summer yeah, show yeah. at the Royal Academy. Yeah. Um, well, the architecture bit at least. The architecture part. Yeah. Um, how has that process been? And well, it was terrifying to begin with because I've only just become an RA, and I said to Neil McLaughlin, who did it last year, "Well, I'll, you know, I have plenty of time to sort of find my feet before they ask me to do that." He said, "Don't you believe it?" <laughs> and more or less, the week later, I got the phone call, and I and I. I'm, you know, I'm glad I didn't say no because that would have been a miserable thing to do. But um, so it was quite terrifying to begin with. But the the, the group, the committee uh, of people who, you know, because the ninety percent of the exhibition is is, is artwork, are the other rooms, um, there were some old hands there who were really supportive and helpful. Um, and I was also working with somebody from here called Emma Kitley, who is an incredibly sort of creative um, individual and who who actually was the person who came up in the first instance with the idea for the room. Uh, and the idea for the room was, was an emphasis on craft and handmade things. And um, which all the models were surrounded by and made by hand. There's no computer involved in any of it. And I just thought it would be an interesting thing to put it out there and see what came out of the woodwork, you know. And um, we, we've had... It's been fantastic. And even some of the, you know, older sort of... Royal Academicians who submit work of rights, they we don't have to, we're not allowed to sort of reject it, uh, have really stepped up to the mark. And um, you know, Nick Grimshaw's office usually submits its latest airport, um, gave us a beautiful sample of this uh, sh stuff called sugarcrete, which they're exploring. So it was that kind of handmade cast of, of this stuff, which um, uses sort of fi fibrous material from sugar. Um, and um, so even they did stuff. So, so, but it's a lovely when you walk in there. It's overwhelmingly sort of mud and earth and and timber and fabric and castings and stuff. Uh, it's got a very nice kind of uh, slightly scruffy vibe about it. it. Sounds like people have had fun getting their hands dirty. Yeah. Was that your intention? Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and you know one of the I was directed by a friend of mine when we came up 
the with the idea to read Richard Sennett's book about craft and making. And right at the outset, he said he wanted to explore the idea that uh, making is thinking, which I thought sort of encapsulate this. And it really um, describes our process in this office, and I think some of the best offices where um, you know there's a, sort of a, a, a closer connection between the mind and what's being produced, whether it's a model or a or a drawing, and it's not mediated by uh, any too much technology. Um, you know, you can sort of it's quick and it's dynamic as a process, whereas I think sitting at a computer screen kind of drawing things, it's, you know, people, there are certain parts of the process, you know, if you're doing work in drawings, a computer is obviously fantastic, but in the early days of, in the early stage of, of a project, it's a very cumbersome tool, actually. Yeah, I suppose it's working out which tool is the best for the best moment. Yeah, well, you can't beat one of those, a pencil, I don't think. And these are particularly good ones, they've got rubber in the end and... Um, Propelling pencils, just uh, what make? Paper mate. Other other. Pen- I mean, they they're horrible because they throw away. Yeah. And we've tried to not use them, but it's just. Uh, you keep going back to what you, you keep know. Going, and they're just, and they're, the lead's just right. It's just it it um, very soft lead kind of wears away really really quick. You can make a good a really good crisp line with this, but it's also dark enough. To, yeah. We may we we may try and approach them for sponsorship. Of the, <laughs> the I should yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Super Urbanism was presented by Tim Abrahams and produced by Lucy Ditchman of the Feast Collective. It was a Machine Books podcast. Please do all those things you do with a podcast you like. Subscribe to it, like it, put it on social media, tell your friends all about it. And you can find more episodes wherever you seek out your listenings on different platforms. You know the deal. Anyway, there's more information about us at www.machinebooks.co.uk. Thank you.